Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guests on this episode are Heritage Holding co-founders Alex DePfeiffer and Ross Porter. Heritage acquires companies across industries, but has a special focus on IT services and data centers. I'm a data geek and love talking with entrepreneurs and data and haven't talked with much of anyone on the hardware side. So this conversation was a lot of fun for me. We talk about identifying companies offering essential services, their data center acquisitions and strategy, what they've learned from private equity on growing companies, and thoughts on a long-term structure for Heritage going forward. At the start of episodes, we are having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with Heather Anderson from Live Oak Bank. Heather, what effects from higher interest rates have you been seeing in your in your lending and, and current clients? Well, certainly the higher interest rate environment increases the, the debt service cost for clients. Um, we're still maintaining our typical standard of a 1.5 debt coverage multiple. And really what we're, we're talking to our clients about is when you're looking to invest in a small business and you're looking at your return on invested capital or your multiple on invested capital, that's really all driven primarily by growth, by, by increasing the EBITDA of the company over time. And if you do that, if you achieve those, those growth hurdles that you set for yourself, um, that's going to have a far greater um, impact on your investment than the interest cost. At, at that point, the interest cost can be, you know, not doesn't have a great big effect on those two those two measures of success. So, um, also, Lisa and I have been in banking for a long time, and we've certainly been lenders in a rate environment similar to this. Maybe not uh, rising as fast, but certainly at higher levels of interest. You know, small businesses have the opportunity to kind of pass along some of those cost increases to their customers. It, it, it certainly increases the debt costs, but not in such a way that makes the investment, you know, less desirable. Great. Thanks, Heather. To learn more about Live Oak's search fund lending, you'll find Lisa and Heather on Live Oak's search fund landing page and find links to resources, FAQs, podcasts, and links to office hours. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Hood & Strong, Oberly Risk Strategies, Ravix Group, and Oakborn Advisors for supporting the show. Now to the episode. Well, it's good to see you guys. Thanks, Alex and Ross, for joining the podcast. I'm excited to talk about Heritage Holdings and all these businesses in between. For folks that aren't familiar, what's the kind of background of Heritage and maybe each of you individually, how'd you kind of get to this point? Sure. I'll start here, Alex. It's a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having us. And, and, I'll, and I'll correct you slightly. Uh, our name is Heritage Holding. And it's a good way of telling our story. We started as, as a as a self-funded search fund, and at the time we wanted to be called Heritage Holdings. We we had sort of you know came up with the name. Ross designed the logo. We, we went to see one of our advisors, Jim Sharp, and and Jim told us, guys, why why do you want to be called Heritage Holdings? You guys are out there to buy one company. You guys ought to be you know Heritage Holdings singular. And that's how the name came about. And until so this day, we, there's a little bit of confusion as to whether we're heritage holding or heritage holdings. But you know, we, we started as a self-funded search. Uh, Ross and I met at business school. We we're in the same section. 
we both come from, from pretty different backgrounds, pretty different you know, professional skill sets. And we got along, I recognized our differences and felt that between the two of us, we could make one good CEO. And so we, you know, in, in the summer, uh, in between our, our two MBA years, we, we decided that we would, we would go out and, and, and search for a company that, that, that we could run. And, and, and that's, that's the inception of Heritage Holding. This, this is Ross here. I'll give a little introduction to myself and maybe expand on that. First of all, thanks for having us on here. Really appreciate uh, you taking the time and having us tell the story here. So yeah, we, uh, we, we graduated in 2015. That's really when we kicked it off. And prior to that, my background uh, was in engineering. So I, I just started mechanical engineering in undergrad. I did some grad school as well. I worked in Silicon Valley for uh, you know, tech startups, uh, one solar manufacturer, one self-driving car. Uh, company. So that was probably four years or so of that, that pretty hardcore engineering work. And then I, I moved out to the East Coast. I followed my wife out in medical school. So moved out there, kind of got out of the engineering world. And I was pretty fortunate to you know expose myself a little bit to uh, entrepreneurship. So I started a business. I was uh, selling hearing aids basically out of my apartment in Philadelphia with a, uh, a co-founder that I went to undergrad with. And uh, we built an online hearing aid business over uh, three or four years. And it was a great experience, kind of got me exposed to, to running small businesses, owning a small business. And, you know, as in business school thereafter, you know, I, I was really focused on, you know, staying within entrepreneurship. So I met up with Alex. We, we really liked each other, you know, personally, but also saw that the difference in our, our backgrounds and thinking process. And we we're thinking about starting a startup on, on that path to entrepreneurship. And then you know, luckily, basically halfway through the first year, we, we got exposed to search funds and entrepreneurship through acquisition it really resonated with uh, what we want to do with our lives what startup ideas were you considering i don't even think we got that far i, th- I think we were just in that fun ideation phase when it didn't really matter at the beginning i don't even think we had any ideas really we were just kind of thinking about the idea of you know starting something and i was still running my, my hearing aid company throughout business school you know i sold the company right at graduation pretty much to start heritage holding here not for crazy money or anything like that. It was, it was okay, but uh, yeah, it gave me great experience in running a business. You know, but my, my background was totally different. You know, I, I, I grew up in Switzerland, came to the U.S. for college. I studied in sort of international affairs, so politics and economics, thinking that I would work for the government or be a diplomat or something like that. And, and you know, I decided to work in, in, in finance after doing a couple of internships and, and Ended up working in investment banking, and but I, I always had an entrepreneurial spirit. I always sort of wanted to launch something, uh, which is sort of what led me to, to to do my MBA. And and it was clear to me that I did not have the next Facebook as as as, as an idea. And, and that's what was appealing to me about the entrepreneurship through acquisition concept is you you don't have to have that that that, that crazy idea. You can just focus on. With thousands of companies that are successful, you know, owned by folks who want to retire soon, uh, want to pass retirement, and you can you know, take what's already existing and, and hopefully bring it to the next level. And so the risk reward there was was highly appealing to me. And so we decided to set up Heritage Holding around helping you know, all the baby boomers who you know are the biggest sort of demographic in terms of business owners in the U.S. and facilitating a path to retirement because what you're seeing is that most of them don't have a daughter or son to take over and we provide that that path to exiting. Have have there been any 
guiding principles or industries for the companies that you've been acquiring? Like, is there any common thread through each of the acquisitions you've done so far? Yeah, the, 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 the Cerny has, I think, we like to focus on companies that are now described as essential businesses. You know, I think COVID, COVID was, was an interesting catalyst uh, for the government to actually begin to describe those companies that are essential. But I think before COVID, we were already thinking along the lines of what are companies that provide such an important service to the community, service to, to the economy, service to the other to other businesses. So service so important that it, it, it stays up and it stays running in a downturn, in a crisis. That that is sort of the, the big picture framework that we approach uh, for all the companies that, that, that we look at, for all the industries that we look at. I think. Another big one that, that that is recurring across heritage holding partner companies is data consumption. So you know, growth in data consumption is is forty to fifty percent a year, depending on who you ask. And we've really we've really like liked investing along that trend. Whether that's by owning data centers, by owning a company that decommissioned servers and laptops by wiping data and, and recycling the parts or uh, a company that builds transport networks. So, so building fiber optics, maintaining data centers and network facilities for the flow of that data. Uh, that's a trend that we really believe in and that we've invested, invested around. Alex does talk about this as, as if it was like an intentional thing. I, I will say it's you know a messy process, right? Like we spent the first year once we graduated, you know, just thinking we would go roll up medical, you know, especially medical clinics out there. And I remember, you know, going to investors the first time we found that first opportunity that we ended up acquiring that did the maintenance and install in, in data centers and network facilities. And investors were just, you know, confused, right? Just saying, hey, <laughs> I thought you guys were doing medical stuff. And all of a sudden, like this weird data center maintenance roll up play. And I, I think that's how it is. Like, I think we've always put in the framework that we want to remain opportunistic, like down to like the structure of how we've done everything together. Like we've always wanted to make sure we have control over everything. We want to make sure that we not get locked into anything that would not allow us to go chase some interesting opportunity that comes up. I think that's, that's really helped us, right? Like, you know, that first deal, we had nothing, no idea about data consumption or data centers or any of that, but Hey, we get into it. We realize, you know, this is really fantastic during diligence. And then we have a, a footprint in it. And once you have a footprint, you get a lot of deal flow, a lot of opportunities pop up. And that's really what led us into finding, hey, here's the data center opportunity. And, and it's equally attractive, just in a different way. You know, we we got introduced from the, the founder of the first business that we acquired into another business that did a lot of fiber uh, installation and maintenance. And that really got us attracted to, you know, what if we go out and own fiber networks and, and internet service providers? So I, I will say, looking in hindsight, it, it looks like this very concrete path of, you know, hey, let's go, go these, do these you know, very logical roll-ups. But at the time, it definitely felt like we were uh, you know, opportunistically chasing new opportunities all the time. And I'm sure it's some, some combination of both. Yeah, that makes sense. There's a, I'm fascinated by all things data, and I've, I haven't come across anyone who has who is invested in data through a like the physical aspects of data like you talked about the internet service providers and data centers like the physical server centers what's the data center business model look like are are these data centers that license their servers to other companies like 
Facebook or Snowflake or what have you? Like, how does that business model work in a nutshell? Yeah, so we, we've decided to focus on data centers in, in, in smaller markets. So, so our, our thesis was if you have leases in, in well-connected buildings, typically carrier hotels, building in which uh, there are multiple fiber networks interconnecting into, that becomes a, a very sort of strategically located place for for folks to have their servers. So, so our investment thesis was around acquiring co-location providers in carrier hotels or strategically located real estate in tier two and tier three markets in the US. The interesting thing there is, first of all, it's, it's very strategy or high because you know, once you have that location with, with all the, the fiber going into it from all the different carriers, it's, it's very hard or expensive to, to build a similar location across the street. We found that, 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 that companies that have their servers co-located in, in, on our premises are are unlikely to change quickly, right? I think when you have servers that house important data where your technicians can access pretty easily, you know, there's, there's some stickiness there. And I think potentially the, the most beautiful part of the, the data center business model is the, the contribution margin is, is very high, right? So once you're you're paying for your space, you're paying for your redundant power, your redundant cooling, your electricity, and you've got your racks in place, most of the next dollar goes to your bottom line. Um, and, and that was a big part of what was attracted to us in, in, in pursuing the business model. And so is there some overlap between, like you mentioned some specific strategies around the locations you pick. Is there something similar along the lines for some of your ISP or other like fiber investments? So that's that's a different thesis altogether. You know, our... Our, our fiber thesis is, is focused around connecting uh, underserved communities. So but what we found is that all the, all the cities now have fiber right, and have multiple options. What is also happening is that a lot of smaller towns that have, let's say, you know, between 1,000 and 20,000 people are still relying on, on fixed wireless as an internet technology to get their broadband. And so we are focused on identifying these communities, acquiring the, the dominant ISPs in these communities and building fiber to the premise, to the home, to the business in those communities uh, and becoming the first mover the first in terms of providing high-speed fiber internet in those underserved communities. So is there some advantage you gain? I imagine you, you talked about a first mover advantage. So if you are the first to bring fiber optic cable to a certain city or county, neighborhood, what have you. Is it is that a pretty defensible moat from somebody else coming in and trying to rebuild the same set of cable? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the switching cost for somebody who's already using our fiber to switch into somebody new would, wouldn't really be there, right? So a town of that size or, you know, municipality, whatever you want to call it, is not going to be able to support, you know, two fiber providers in there. So to be that second person to spend millions of dollars to go build out fiber into some some region like that. Like there's just not going to be enough subscribers that come on board for that to, to make it worthwhile. If you're the first one, then you know everyone's jumping on board, right? It's the difference from going from, you know, hardly being able to stream Netflix to being able to get 
you know, top tier internet service. And, and that's a big difference for a community. And you know, a lot of people sign up for that, you know, that, that next wave, right? If you had a second provider, you know, maybe prices come down a little bit or, you know, the quality might be slightly better, but it's not enough to really make people switch on to it and to warrant that kind of investment for somebody for somebody new. Big cities, you know, they can support whatever, four or five different providers, you have Verizon, Comcast, you know, some of these new, new fiber entrants that are coming in. And, and that's fine, right? They can get 20, 30% penetration and still make it work. But in the communities that we're going into, it's, it's really one, one provider that really uh, can support it. Who's your typical competitor for those companies, for other buyers trying to acquire those same businesses? Yeah, there's a few large players out there, right? So big internet service providers that do make acquisitions that they try to build up their network through acquisition. So we, we occasionally see that. I think we have the advantage that we're willing to start a little bit smaller and scrappier and messier and you know step in, help clean up systems and processes and documentation of where the network is and you know contracts to, to actually have legal contracts for, for customers and subscribers. And so we don't typically see it at the scale we're, we're going after. And then after that, there's not much. Like it's a pretty small community. You know, most of the deals that we go after are ones that we're reaching out to directly and explaining you know, our, our background and in data and data centers and you know, our current holdings and fiber, which which is really attractive for folks. Yeah, I, there aren't there aren't many consolidators of assets uh, this assets of the size that, that we're we're looking at. I, th- I think we're you know the, the Interesting thing about what we're, what we're building there is the larger players are very focused on much larger, much larger towns in terms of population. Uh, you know, we, we're we're coming in at, at much at a much smaller size, and our value proposition is that we can provide you know high speed internet, low latency, compared to an imperfect fixed wireless solution, and uh, you know, that means that our adoption rates once we actually bring fiber to, to those towns is is extremely high. Uh, what, what keeps other providers out of those towns is is that they're you know in terms of when, when they do run their models around where to go in, they, they'd rather go into you know a, a greenfield opportunity or build neighborhoods and towns where they are they are already. And so you know being that first mover does just sort of create a barrier to entry in that the ROI gets lower for potential competitors. And once you own an ISP, what are the what are the ROI metrics for expanding that footprint? So if you were going to go and if there's a neighboring county that also doesn't have fiber or could use fiber, how do you kind of evaluate whether it's a good idea to go build fiber and expand and literally lay cable through that county? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's a great question. There are many variables that go into that, 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 that equation. I think the, the, one of the biggest pieces is the construction cost, right? So, so how much will it cost to actually put the fiber in the ground on telephone poles and connect those homes? How many of those homes or businesses do we think will, will take our, 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 our internet service uh, is another one. And I think lastly is, you know, are we, but by building fiber into this new, new neighborhood or subdivision, are we, are we taking away customers from ourselves, right? Is there a cannibalization of our existing fixed wireless customers, which uh, will happen naturally, but that, that is something to be taken into account as well. And, and what we found is, you know, those pure fiber internet service providers are 
or trading at pretty high multiples, right? High, high teens. And w- we would rather, you know, build fiber at, you know, at a sort of a low single digit million dollars of EBITDA in terms of construction multiple rather than acquire all these pure play fiber players. So our ROI is let's, let's calculate how much it costs to connect these homes and these businesses. Let's prioritize the projects that have, you know, the highest ROI, the lowest build multiple in terms of EBITDA. And let's just, let's go quickly. <laughs> So we a lot of so your so the data investments we've talked about so far are physical data centers, ISPs, and various fiber business models. Where do you see other opportunities in data for investment strategies? Are you are you seeing any in more on the software side, or is are, you, are there still so many hardware opportunities that are keeping you occupied? We love the hardware side. Uh, it's software for us gets a little tricky just because valuation expectations are a little different than what we typically look for. You know, we're looking more towards these great kind of service models or kind of hardware models that that are, are trading not at crazy you know software valuations. So, so one other company that we own, they uh, manage the end of life of IT assets. So they partner up with a lot of data center operators, you know, just regular big uh, companies as well, big enterprises. And they handle all the end of end of life IT assets, so laptops, desktops, servers, drives that come out of it. And so, when a, a big Fortune 500 company has, you know, let's say 40,000 laptops, they're refreshing those every three to four years. They have a three-year-old laptop, still probably worth a few hundred bucks. And they don't really know what to do with it, right? They want to make sure the data security is 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 on par, right? That we're going to wipe all the data on it. We're not going to have any breach of data. They want to make sure that there's environmental Cautions taken here, so things are going to end up in landfills. They want to make sure that you know, all the logistics are taken care of. So, uh, if they have assets across the world, you know that the process is going to look the same anywhere that they uh, they give us an asset, and then there's some value recovery back to them. So it's a fantastic business, right? We partner with a big Fortune 500 customer. They end up getting money back from us, right? They give us a bunch of assets they've already depreciated fully, and we'll get them a check back and process those assets. And they get the peace of mind on data, you know, data wiping on everything. They don't have to worry about the logistical headache. Um, but it's a great model. You know, we're getting a lot of value out of these three, four-year-old IT assets, and that's something we saw, you know, early on. Right, our first acquisition, we were doing a lot of the installation of data centers, and we were wondering, hey, where these assets end up? Saw a few businesses that were handing those downstream, and started really looking into that that industry. And you know, luckily, we found a great player in New Hampshire that was doing it really well. And you know, I I think that it's 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 interesting because there, are, when you think about you know, growth in data consumption, you know, that's that's I've talked about this as being a big driver of our filtering of industries that we're looking into. But the next layer of that um, is sort of what Ross talked about, right? When you have all that data, what happens next? Uh, you know, IT data security is on on the, the desk of every CIO in corporate America. It, it, you, you've got to make sure that not only when your servers are live and your laptops are live and up and running that the data is protected, but on the way out, you, you've got to you can't have the servers and laptops ending up on eBay without without getting wiped, right? You, you've got to make sure that everything is everything is getting erased and and everything is and that you don't have, you don't Carry the liability with you, uh, so that's one of the next layers that we're exploring as Heritage is what other companies enable 
optimization of data security, network security, IT security. And for that reason, we're, we're very focused on the managed services space. You know, it's, it's an area that we've been looking into for a couple of years. We are looking at managed service providers, managed service, managed security services providers as a new angle, new, new vertical for Hydrogen Holding because you think that's the next layer of, of that trend of growth in data consumption. But another one is still relating to the company that Ross is talking about. Uh, not only do you have to manage your IT data security carefully, you also want to make sure that when, when you're getting rid of, 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 of your IT assets, that you're minimizing your environmental impact. And that is, over the last few years, has, has become increasingly top of mind to a lot of the CIOs, CTOs, IT folks at large organizations. Part of that is because the SEC is, is, is talking about requiring companies to disclose to, to disclose their climate risk. And part of that is evaluating your supply chain forward and reverse and figuring out what your environmental impact is. And so we're looking at companies that are helping uh, those Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 firms not only evaluate what, what their environmental impact is, but also help them reduce that environmental impact because they'll have to disclose it publicly sooner or later. Yeah, I think the stats on that are pretty bad in the U.S. I think in Europe, it's somewhere around 50 or 60% of uh, electronics are responsibly recycled or, or reused. In the U.S., I think it's, it's something like in the, the mid-teens, like everything else ends up in the landfill at the end of the day, which is uh, obviously pretty sad. I think Europe's gotten, gotten ahead of it with some good regulations. I think the U.S. isn't too far behind. But that's, that's really what we're trying to push is like these big secular tailwinds of, hey, they, these need to be corrected at some point, and you know, we want to have some, some asset that's playing in that space. So uh, like that company that does the IT hardware, we love it, right? It has all the trends of data security, all the trends of you know, better environmental responsibility, and you know, we, we want to continue to grow that and uh, expand it as much as we can. Shifting gears a little bit, one thing you've mentioned a few times is kind of the scale of different companies, and one thing I'd love to hear about more is how, what have you learned from managing companies at different size ranges? So as a company you own grows, how does manage, management of it shift and maybe goals or the, your style, how does it shift over time as a company grows larger? Yeah, I think the biggest risk that we, we deal with is just the size of the company. You know, I think that the biggest risk in these small businesses is that they are small and because they're small, they tend to have you know a lot of concentration, whether that's customer concentration or like a key person risk. Like one person has all the sales accounts, one person has the full processing. So, so we have this belief that you know just gaining scale, even if there's not really that much synergy or benefit, just gaining scale in general just provides so many opportunities. You know, we we've dealt with everything, right? We've dealt with we bought a business that was a few hundred thousand in EBITDA. We've you know bought businesses that are you know up to five million in EBITDA. And there's just a huge difference. Like if you have that scale, like the, the the ability to operate those businesses just becomes a lot easier. Like there's there's more complexity and more decisions you have to make, but I think they're just more solutions, right? If when we started with the data center, the first data center we bought had half a million of EBITDA, and just like the thought of hey, let's go hire a salesperson and you know, go burn twenty percent of our EBITDA on some guy's salary. Like, that's a tough decision to make, right? Like there's not that much cash flow, there's debt, there's you know all these other issues in the business. And just because it's small, like you can't really make those types of decisions that easily. And so 
our, our big philosophy is, you know, once we get into these opportunities, even if they're small, like how quickly can we get them to, you know, a reasonable scale? And I think our thresholds in general are, you know, upfront, we, we can start with things that are pretty small, but we want to see that path to getting past two or $3 million in cash flow. And that really allows us to make decisions that we generally think are pretty obvious in the business, right? Like investing a little bit in growth and sales, you know, investing maybe in like a software platform to have better operations and better control over the data in the business. And those, those are a lot harder to make when it's a really small company. And similarly, as we get that scale, I think just more opportunities come up of you know, here are new services that we can sell. Here's new, uh, you know, here's ways that we can diversify the business. So, so across our platform, you know, we, we've now made 17 acquisitions, I, I think. Is that right, Alex? Yeah, something like that. So a lot of what we'd like to do is bring in, you know, it's across six platforms. So we like to do these follow-on acquisitions. And, and part of it's, you know, some strategic element, right? We want to open up some new geography or we really like the sales team on the acquisition that we're going to bring in. But a lot of it's just, let's gain scales so that we can have a platform around that. You know, we can have, you know, more cash flow to hire on better people and really grow through that. So I'd say there's... Yeah, there's definitely a difference between a half million dollar EBITDA platform, you know, the five million, you know, our first platform that we grew, we got up to about 12 million in EBITDA and we sold that business last year. And, uh, you know, at 12, it was, it was definitely a, a different threshold than it was at three. I think there's a lot more opportunities for making acquisitions, you know, more capacity to raise debt and equity at pretty friendly terms, you know, just more kind of momentum in the business to make key hires, to, uh, to make bigger investments to, to grow the business. You know, I think Alex and I talk about this a lot is like, what, what's our, you know, overall focus? I think initially Heritage was, we had this idea of, hey, let's get these messy businesses. Let's personally spend a lot of time in the best businesses to help them grow, help them, you know, become more efficient and, uh, you know, get them to a point when they're, you know, let's say five to 10 million EBITDA and, you know, a great platform for a private equity buyer to, to take that next life cycle for business. And I think more and more we're, we're looking at, you know, what, what if we just continue to grow it? I think we've seen now after selling a few of these businesses to those private equity buyers that maybe demystified a little bit of what they do. I, I think most are phenomenal and like they have great processes and they do really great things with the businesses. But you know, I think it's nothing that, that Alex and I can figure out ourselves and start running ourselves. And I think that's going to be our, our next step in heritage holding is, is trying to grow businesses, you know, even beyond that, right? Holding on to them longer, do more follow on acquisitions and try to grow platforms of a you know, substantial scale. It's, it's a challenge in my mind. And it's a challenge between how do we keep the agility, the, the, the sort of the, the scrappiness that we've had and that are really part of, of our DNA and what we do while scaling and, and sort of you know, adding process in, in organizations that are, you know, 15, 20, 25 million dollars of EBITDA. And so while I, I do believe that, you know, there, there is, you know, there's no, there's no secret sauce to, 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 to running and building a business that's, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 million dollars of EBITDA. It's a lot of the similar things that we do, right? You're, you're upgrading the ERP system, right? From QuickBooks to, uh, to Sage to, you know, to, to Oracle, whatever, you know, it, it's sort of, it, it's, it's a similar technological upgrade. You're, you're hiring key management that have seen the evolution of a company from a smaller size to a larger size. You're figuring out new, new, new avenues to, to grow from a sales perspective, like right? new channels, new, 
your industries, you know, new, new customer targets, really, and you're continuing to to do M and A. So you you know the, the post merger integration process, which in my opinion is one of the most challenging pieces of it all, but that's also a big portion of of of, of the value drivers that a you know a private equity firm will, will use to get to get a business from from fifteen million dollars of EBITDA to fifty. And so, but my constant sort of paradox, so to say, is how do we, you know, institutionalize "quote unquote" while staying true to what has made us sort of successful? And, and today it is, which is our our frugality, our scrappiness, right? And so, I, I think that's that's a real tension that I think is a healthy tension that that, that Ross and I have, right? Uh, and that we think about a lot. For example, you know. When we think about hiring for executives, you know, a new VP of ops, a COO, a CEO, the way we've we've done it typically is we've we've done it internally, right? We've we've sort of done a network search, we've called cold called cold outreach to folks, we've looked on LinkedIn, you know, we, we played a volume game, we talked to a lot of people. You know, a, a much more effective way to do it that I've seen some of our private equity partners do is just you know. Pay a substantial retainer to, to to a strong search firm and, and have them do the work and and you'll get someone in the right seat quicker and yes it costs you a bit more upfront money but you know you hopefully your end result will, will be the same if not better but you know I think going back to Ross's Ross's point I, I think it, it seeing how private equity firms are are, are working so you know, by the way Ross and I do not have any PE experience at all right we, we approach heritage holding as an entrepreneur and a salesperson trying to build a private equity firm so that we have a pretty unique lens when it comes to, to doing private equity. But you know, now that we've seen private equity firms, which are you know, very successful and capable, do what they do for the last year and three months, it feels like you know, we, we've gained more confidence to think that we can actually handle that next layer of growth you know, from 10 to $15 million in EBITDA. Yeah, between 10 and 50 is there anything in particular that you've noticed that changes the most in terms of how the management team is is set up or the kind of look and feel of that company? You mentioned wanting to keep the kind of scrappiness of the companies you have so far. Like what what is of the 50 million EBITDA companies you've looked at so far, what what appears to be the most different compared to the companies you have today? I would say it's a lot, a lot more people. You know, I, I, I think this just, it's just, Having bigger teams, bigger finance teams, bigger sales teams, bigger ops teams, you know, bigger post-merger integration teams. Right? I, I think that that is, you know, that that is the obvious difference I see between a company at scale, you know, uh, versus a company at uh, sort of the size we play at. And you know, I think we typically we typically handle a lot of the, the roles I mentioned in house and heritage. Right? We, we try and we, we try and lead. Business development, technological upgrades, uh, post-merger integration. But when I see the sort of the, the scale of the teams that are solving the problems of a larger company, you know, I find that impressive, effective. I'd like to think that we'll get there one day, and I, and I and I'd like to think that when we're there, we'll we'll still have the, the do more with less attitude. So our our teams won't be quite as big because we'll be we'll, we'll try and stay true to our. You know, agility, you know, the agile mentality that we have, but I think the team size is a big one. 
No, I think that's right. You know, I think what we see generally in most service businesses like this is, you know, one one person can kind of manage something that's twenty, maybe thirty million in revenue. I think beyond that, if they're not willing to kind of invest in a deep management team that can oversee, you know, new lines or new verticals or new geographies, they they really get capped out of that. And that's most of the business owners that we partner up with is you know they're kind of bumping up into that and they uh, they really need support to kind of help get that next layer of growth. So going from like a 20, 30 million revenue to like the 100 or 150 that, that we saw the growth of our first platform, you know, that was a lot of our, our role, right? Let's bring in some management people who are really strong, right? They can open up their own basically book of business and manage it themselves, you know, empower that first founder who, who stayed with us and who's still on there today with us six years later, you know, really allowed him to, to kind of focus on managing that, that core management team. And, uh, you know, he, he had a strong management team when we stepped in, but it's something that we really focused on is, is getting him a deeper management team. And then, you know, that same business is now, you know, probably 400, 500 million after many acquisitions more. Um, this is with the new ownership of last year. And it's really impressive. And I think part of it is, you know, they bought our, our company with alongside another company and that other company's, you know, leader became the CEO of the entire platform. And, and I think what Alex said is it's really important, right? The people matter a lot like that, that one person, that CEO, it just has a really good finger on the pulse of basically all the employees can communicate with a you know electrician in the field just as well as you can communicate with you know these big private equity guys in the boardroom, and you know he's really strong at that kind of interpersonal skills of understanding it all. You mentioned early on in our conversation that so far you have taken a more independent sponsor type approach to some of the structures you've had with these companies. Going forward, what are some structured questions you're weighing in your minds in terms of what you want or need in these next couple acquisitions in the future? Yeah, it's something Alex and I talk through a lot. You know, I think we've we've had two guiding principles for us overall. Like one, we want to have fun with what we're doing. Like that's something we sat down early on in business school and said, "Hey, like, this got to be fun in order for this to work." And, you know it hasn't been fun for sure. It's sometimes, right. There's, there's definitely some low moments in this whole process of broken up deals or you know, losing out on contracts or employees that are quitting or whatever it is, but on its whole, it's, it's extremely fun, right? Like you, you're meeting really interesting people, really fantastic businesses. You get to make really critical decisions and you know, in pressure situations. And it's really rewarding when, you know, you win a big contract or things really work out or you're able to, to, to combine businesses in a good way. So, so that's one thing we always focus on is the fun. And I think the second thing we've always focused on is, is having some sort of control. You know, early on we we talked to some investors that yeah, you know, different models, right? That where the board had governance or investors, LPs had, had control over when to buy a company, when to sell a company. And we really said, you know, we want the entrepreneurial way of doing this, right? Like these companies are pretty messy and we're gonna be in there day to day. And I, you know, I think that we'll try to, to learn best of what the company needs and what the right things for the businesses are. So we've always kind of weighed that balance of, of you know, having our own control over things, like really being true entrepreneurs, building heritage, building the portfolio of companies we have. Uh, I'm not saying we, we don't listen to investors or you know we have boards for everything. We always get external advice from external board members, but you know, at the end of the day, we really want to make sure that that we can remain opportunistic when these opportunities come by. It's worked out really well. You know, we, we've had these opportunities that you know, maybe other people would be limited to, to go and go acquire, right? Like the first business we bought had 80% customer concentration. Like that's crazy. A lot of, you know, structured funds or other investment, you know, structures would probably have 
rules in place to say no to a deal like that. Maybe that's a good thing, right? Maybe we shouldn't have bought a business like that, but it worked out really well. And, you know, kind of fit our model of, hey, even though it's really risky and messy, like we're going to step in there. And that's been our sole focus for a year or two is, is getting that diversity in, in the business. And so we, we've always tried to remain that structure of, you know, let's have a structure. We're going to have fun, right? Like we get to dictate our own shots. We get to and do what we want and have that autonomy to, to make our own decisions. And so we've gone back and forth with it. You know, we see the benefits of having a, a more structured private equity fund, you know, raising say you know, hundred, two hundred million dollars and deploying it. Probably have to be in slightly larger companies, which would get more competitive. We'll probably have to be doing more deals, which would mean we can get less involved in each platform, which you know I think we would think, you know, would would make returns come down a little bit from what we've had. But uh, it's something that we're we're discussing all the time right now. In the short run, I think we've we really like the model that we have right now. We have a great group of investors who really trust us. They really like this asset class, right? They like the idea of let's go buy these great small messy companies that can be built into you know wonderful platforms over time. And, and so we really appreciate you know what they bring to the table. And then you know we really think that this is a good model for us to, uh, to continue to do what we're doing. Yeah, the traditional prior equity game is. Is a completely different game, right? I, I think you know you're you're spread much more thinly across many more companies, and you know, you're you're less in touch with the, you know, the direct impact of, impact of the decision you're making. I think going back to what Ross said around you know, why we started Heritage Holding in large part is you know we want to this need, in order for us to enjoy what we do it needs to be fun. And I think. I get a lot of satisfaction in seeing you know, what, how, how good decisions result to a, a big customer win, a, a new market opening up from scratch, a successful acquisition that integrates way out well from a cultural perspective. These are, these, are, these are things that bring a lot of personal satisfaction for, for us that you know, I worry about losing as as we scale and become if we become a you know sort of a larger scale private equity more traditional private equity entity perhaps even more importantly the favorite part of my job and, and i tell this to, to to the folks that i interact with when you know when we're exploring acquiring companies or we're working with sellers of companies that we acquired is is working alongside those ceos founders who who have these unique skills and and management philosophies that we get to learn from every day, and that is something that you know we won't get to do if we're in a position where we're overseeing you know 40, 50 companies. You know, we'll be very far removed from the introduction meeting with a business owner, where we get to learn about you know wh- what what makes them special as a business model, as a as an entrepreneur, as a CEO, and and and, and that part I, I really enjoy. So. You know, going back to your initial question, Alex, I think there's, there are some real tensions around returns, you know, personal fulfillment, uh, being close to what decisions are made. The fact that we are, we consider ourselves operators before investors and, you know, becoming a fully fledged private equity fund, deploying, you know, deploying a lot of money in a short amount of time. I feel like we would lose a lot of what has made us successful today. Yeah, there's definitely going to be trade-offs in any of those structured decisions on on either end. I want to close with our our two typical closing questions. First one being, what's a strongly held belief that you've each changed your mind on? Maybe, Roz, do you want to start? 
Yeah. Yeah. There's one over the course of the last you know, seven years of heritage holding just came to mind here. You know, when we first bought our first company, you know, I, I talked a little bit to, to advisors and other people and really kind of, you know, what should you be as a CEO, right? Like, should you come into this persona of, you know, what you think a CEO should be, right? Should you be friends with the employees or should you be somewhat reserved and, and kind of casual with folks? And I remember what my, my aunt, I was talking to one of my aunts who's, you know, a good leader, never been in business before, but she was saying, oh, Ross, you, you can't, you can't be like yourself. Like I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I don't know, I don't know a good way to describe myself, but I don't take things too seriously. I'll say that much. She said, Ross, you, you really got to, you got to change, right? Like you can't, you can't go in there day one thinking you'd be somebody's friend and just do a bunch of jokes and pranks on people. And, and yeah, probably six, first six months, I, I was fairly reserved, you know, kind of wanted to make sure that I was the boss and, you know, try to, try to garner some respect that way. And, and, you know, pretty quickly changed my mind on that. Like, I think at the end of the day, it's hard not to be yourself and like not to be, uh, to be how you are as like an authentic leader. And I think over, over that first year, it really changed. And I think, you know, what, what a good example of that is like the first company we bought was, it was at its core an electrical, you know, union electrical shop in Boston here. And, you know, a lot of kind of construction folks. Meanwhile, I drive, you know, my beat up 2011 Toyota Prius and, get around Boston on my electric skateboard. And I remember meeting uh, one of the, the senior managers of the construction division, you know, first, first couple meetings with them, we went out to dinner and we were at our office in Boston. Alex and I decided, let's, let's take our two skateboards over and meet him at the steakhouse in Boston. <laughs> it's good. I mean, it's just like a great way to like build trust and camaraderie with folks, just kind of being yourself and being really genuine around people. I think we've learned that pretty quickly is like, it's hard to kind of keep up with any persona or like, fabrication that you, you make around who you are and what leadership you're trying to, to be here. And, and that guy, you know, still will make fun of me for my electric skateboard and my, my Prius, but you know, he has a lot of respect for, for who we are and what we did with the business. And, and uh, I thought that was a really important transition that we have. And I think we yeah, he, quite, he quite literally fell off his chair when he saw us rolling, rolling in with skateboards. Uh, <laughs> I, I, had, I had fallen off my skateboard on my way to dinner as well. So I had like a scab arm, but, you know, till this day, you know, he still wants to have an annual sort of end of year dinner with us because we were sort of so memorable and and so you know we became he let his guard down after that you know when he saw us rolling on skateboards so that was a fun time. Yeah, that's a great one, Alex. What's your change belief? You know, my change belief belief is is around transparency of of, of numbers and 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 metrics. You know, I think. We we work with with a, a lot of you know, small smaller founder-owned businesses who have typically kept a lot of the, the numbers close to their chest. You know, we, we've we've been in companies where you know the controller you know wasn't even allowed to get full you know full financial access to you know to, to, to the data of the company. Right, couldn't own the whole QuickBooks file. So we have we have folks that are you know believe in keeping a lot of the financial data pretty guarded. And, and one of our one of our investors told us early on he actually runs his own his, his own technology business and you know, his advice was, "Hey guys, I, I'm 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 probably not going to speak to you until you you sell and you give me my money back. But if I have one piece of advice, it's give folks visibility into your, your numbers into how, how into it, visibility into, into how well the company's doing because that will create 
some sort of motivation and, and, and a competitive spirit around meeting monthly, quarterly, annual goals. And I, I, off the cuff, I dismissed that thinking that that's not how it's done. You, you, you can't give people too much information. You know, you can't tell them how well the company is doing because they're going to want to raise or, you know, they're, they're going to feel like they can work less. And, 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 and that was completely wrong. I think the best decisions, we, some of the best managerial decisions we've made were giving transparency to operational folks, salespeople, folks you know who are technicians, visibility on how the company was doing, how their region is doing, how their specific you know, business line is doing, and, and, and being public around where we want to go. We've had people who, who are not even financially remunerated by the outcome just be thrilled at the result of beating targets. And so, you know, to answer your question, Alex, what, what's changed is I, I believe the, the approach of keeping financial data and, and, and numbers guarded, now I see the, the full benefit in, in revealing those and, and, and getting getting team members to be to, to, to set their, their view on what quarterly goals and annual goals are. That's a good one, Alex. I like that one. I think it's definitely one of our advantages too. Like, I get it. If you're a business owner and you pocketed $2 million last year, you probably don't want to tell your, your managers that are making salaries of, of what you're taking home. But I think it's one of our core advantages, right? Like people understand that we have lenders and debt and investors. And even though the company might be making a, a lot of money, it's not like it's going into our pockets or you know anyone's pockets there. So it's definitely an advantage we have over you know just a, a owner-operated businesses. I think we have a lot more flexibility to release that information and have employees you know get on board with it yeah that makes a lot of sense i like that one ross what's the best business you've ever seen yeah we we uh we saw a great business so when we uh, in our first platform we maintain a lot of networking facilities so these are where telcos and uh, msos so cable operators charter comcast verizon at&t we, we maintain a lot of facilities like that and each city will have a what's called a carrier hotel so this is where long haul fiber, so fiber that comes from, let's say, New York to Boston or you know, long distances will come and, and enter into the city. And there's a building here in Boston where you basically everybody who's related to telco, even like Harvard University and anyone who wants to get, get kind of direct access to, a, to high speed fiber from, from long distances all have a little suite in. So this business, one summer street here in Boston, but it's the main carrier hotel for all of Boston, which is incredible. And they can lease out basically a small, let's say a thousand square feet for a few million dollars a year to these, these telecom uh, companies just because they need access to that fiber so they can go sell it to their customers. And we would maintain these facilities. We'd physically see, like, here's the fiber connection that goes and powers all of Fidelity downtown Boston here. And it, was, it was such a cool business. It was basically one entrepreneurial guy. I don't know the full story, but, you know, 40 years ago or so, you know, really saw the that fiber was the future and you know that there would be such a moat there that they'd be the only building that would have long haul fiber that if you could you know control that asset you'd be able to, to make a lot of money on it and you know obviously it worked out really well for them yeah that's a good bet is it is it how i imagine where there's cables coming out of the ground from that are you know gigantic like the size of like wine barrels in terms of thickness or is it is it deceptively small perhaps I haven't seen the whole thing. As you can imagine, there's pretty tight security in that building. So uh, I'm allowed to get into the, the, the only the parts where I can you know, walk in a few hallways and get into the buildings that we manage. It's been built out a lot. 
like just to get access onto the roof to put like a new generator to support one of the suites is a six month long process to you know convince everybody that that's the right decision just because space is limited in the physical constraints of the building so it, everything costs a lot of money to get things done and and it takes a lot of time and effort to get to do it that makes sense alex what's your best business you know ross kind of stole my thunder there i wish i've talked before ross but i had a similar business in mind not quite the same and, and by the way those carrier hotels like the one in one summer street are the kinds of buildings that i was sort of telling you about earlier where you know as a co-location service provider we, we would have a, a long-term lease and then you know rent sort of rack space in in, in those suites it, but it's much smaller markets in boston and, and you know i really that was you know, I really love that business model of being a, a well-located co-location service provider. I, I think mine is, 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 is somewhat related. It's around MDU fiber. So MDUs are multi-dwelling units. Essentially, you're, they're residential buildings that, that contain multiple units, right? So an apartment building, you know, a condo, townhomes, mobile home parks. And I like the idea of being the only fiber provider to those to those MDUs, and I like the idea because, uh, especially when those MDUs are located in, in in areas that aren't that accessible, like up a hill or in, in a ski resort or in, in on an island in a beach town, uh, because you know once you build that 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 fiber to that MDU, there is so much staying power. You know, it, it, the, the you're unlikely to have competitors build to that exact dwelling. And instead of managing, you know, a hundred customers, you're actually just dealing with the building or the or the HOA, and so, you know, you've you've got sort of one throat to choke, as as the saying goes. But you're you're really dealing with one counterparty, which makes things administratively a lot easier. So, a company that does fiber installation deployment and and runs internet to these MTUs is a business model that I'm a big fan of. I love it. Those are both fascinating. I, I love hearing about these different data businesses. So I'll, I'll have to ask you for more later on. But thank you both so much for sharing a little bit of your time and coming on the podcast and talking about it. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks, Alex. great, Alex. Thanks for having us. That was, it was fun to talk about it. And we'll talk soon. And excited to hear it when it comes live. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, Ravix Group, Overly Risk Strategies, and Oakborn Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. Mm-hmm.